This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Ending homelessness and improving healthcare, today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Erica Grotto. Today I'm talking with Beth Sandor at Community Solutions about the links between homelessness and health. But first, let's find out what's happening in healthcare finance news. We'll be back in a moment with Nick Hutt and Sean Stack. This is Sean Stack, HFMA's Director of Perspectives and Analysis, and I'm excited to tell you about our new bi-monthly webinar series designed specifically for hospital executives. HFMA will provide timely updates on the latest national healthcare reimbursement and revenue cycle regulations, policies, and trends. This series will equip you with the knowledge and insights you need to navigate the complex world of your healthcare business office. You can register now at hfma.org under webinars. Hello, everybody. We are reviewing a couple of the big healthcare policy stories for November. We recently did a segment, our most recent segment, as a matter of fact, where we previewed the uh, momentous policy stories to come this month. A couple of the biggest have come to pass. I don't think there's a big surprise with how either of them shook out, but uh, let's talk first about the remedy payment plan for 340B hospitals. HHS released a final rule on the framework for the $9 billion aggregate payment. Sean, again, no real surprises, but what were your thoughts about the key points of the plan? No real surprises, Nick. Um, You know, CMS came out on November 8th and published their final rule on the 340B drug pricing programs remedy. Nothing too surprising here. It looks like they're going to be instructing the max to go ahead and repay those out. It looks like payments most likely will be coming out in January of next year on those remedy payments, still looking at a budget neutrality factor being imposed on the on the OPPS fee schedule to claw back that money from the OPPS services, non-pharmacy services over the next 16 years at a 0.5% reduction on the market basket increase. But no surprise to us, but I, I can say for me and from most of my colleagues, very, very, very disappointed in CMS that they did not make hospitals whole on the the unlawful decrease in payment from the Medicare Advantage plans. Um, CMS should have been on the hook for those underpayments, and they have continued to re- pretty much remain silent and let hospitals know that it is up to them to negotiate that clawback or that repayment for those short pays on 340B drugs from Medicare Advantage. I do not believe that that is up to the hospitals or up to the plans to pay that money back. It should be coming directly from CMS. 
So I, I'm very disappointed in the agency for that, that falter, I guess I should say. Right. Yeah, they fought back on, on language about not being able to dictate any kind of contractual terms to Medicare Advantage plans. And therefore, uh, like you said, according to CMS, it's, it's out of their hands. But that kind of rings hollow to a lot of people. HHS did provide a one-year delay in the start of the $7.8 billion outpatient payment cut that hospitals are facing over a 16-year period as a result of budget neutrality, which ties into these remedy payments. That'll now start in 2026 instead of 2025 as previously proposed and still is projected to span uh, 15 years. If nothing else, hopefully the industry will be on somewhat more solid financial footing when that cut takes effect than it generally is as we speak today. With a two-year lead-up to the cut, is there any opportunity to advocate for mitigating the reduction? Uh, these regulations were described as a final rule with no apparent opportunity for stakeholders to comment, but that might not stop people from commenting. Great, Nick. And, and I do think um, you know hospitals are still going to have to mitigate the 0.5 percentage point adjustment to the fee schedule on the Medicare Advantage side because there is literally nothing to claw back there since Medicare Advantage is not making the hospitals whole for that shortfall on the 340B. So either hospitals need to take it upon themselves to negotiate if, if that cut is going to roll through on the Medicare Advantage fee schedule side, which we all know Medicare Advantage typically pays a certain percentage over Medicare, but it's based on that OPPS fee schedule on the outpatient side, hospitals are going to have to negotiate that balance in their contracts for the next year. So CMS really has left providers and the Advantage plans holding the bag on their mistake here. Yeah, we got to uh, see what the ramifications are of that whole what you could describe as an oversight moving forward. Now, as we move on to discussing another big set of healthcare policies that were finalized, namely the final rule for updates to hospital price transparency regulations, there are big changes coming in 2024. We've already gone into technical detail in a couple of previous episodes, but at a high level, what did you think about the final rule? <laughs> Still, you know, this the devil's still going to be in the details, Nick, on how the enforcement and compliance regulations are rolled out through the public-facing website. I do think we are a little bit happier with the language that came out on the certification of the MR app. It looks like CMS is looking for just a disclaimer added to the hospital MRF files stating that the MRF is indeed accurate and has been validated by the hospital to be accurate, not only in payment methodology, but also in the rates. Um, so I'm pretty happy with the way that language worked out. I am very concerned that people are going to misinterpret compliance language or compliance transparency out there on, on CMS's website to show that that is hospitals not being compliant, refusing to be compliant, or failing to be compliant when it's just audit letters. And the hospitals may not be at fault or may be actively working with CMS on certain details that do appear to be gray in the regulation and open for interpretation. So more to come there on how CMS rolls that public-facing website out and what type of education they do with press and patient advocacy groups on what that indeed means. Also very happy with the machine-readable file rollout. At least we got um, a reprieve and the machine-readable file standard schema 
will not begin to be mandated or required until July 1st. Originally, it was March 1st of next year. So that gives people, hospitals, a little bit more time to make sure that that build to that compliance spec is proper and correct, because that's a big build on behalf of the providers. And then calling out that there are several individual lines in that standard schema that are scaled out to be compliant at a little bit later dates. The heavier lift standard schema items um, go beyond July 1st. So it is a staggered approach to some of those fields on that standard schema. So I think, you know, definitely more comments to come at CMS on defining the, that standard schema and some of the details of that rule. But overall, not extremely upset about how that rolled out and not really surprised either. Yeah, thanks for the rundown on that. So as you said, you know, what one uh, part of the machine-readable file that won't need to be addressed by hospitals until January 1st, 2025, which is six months past the uh, deadline for complying with, with a lot of these new fields, is converting an algorithm or percentage that you've negotiated with your health plan on a rate for a particular service, converting that into a dollar figure. That's something you can wait to start listing in the machine-readable file until January 1st of 2025. So that's just an example of what you were talking about as far as the accommodations that were made for hospitals in this final rule. And with respect to enforcement, it seemed to me, if I was reading it correctly, that CMS may be taking a more thorough look at hospitals' prices if it thinks anything might be amiss, rather than just doing like a website audit. So that's something they may need to be prepared for as well. All right. So thanks for the insight, Sean. We'll uh, definitely look forward to continuing to get your perspective as these new aspects of, of price transparency roll out over the next six months to a year. Somehow, folks, this is our last episode before Thanksgiving. It's hard to believe we're already so late in the year. But uh, Sean, a very fun and, and satiating holiday to you and, of course, to all of our listeners. Talk soon, everybody. We'll be back in a moment. In a column for the October issue of HFM Magazine, Ken Perez discussed the connection between homelessness and health outcomes. In the column, he mentioned the work of Community Solutions, a not-for-profit organization dedicated to ending homelessness. I wanted to know more about their work and recently was able to talk with Beth Sandor, the organization's chief program officer. She told me about a recent pilot program that brought together health systems and other community institutions to work toward ending homelessness and improving healthcare. The pilot has been an effort of our organization, Community Solutions, and at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We've been partnered with them for over the last decade in our work on ending homelessness and, and looking at the things we can learn from healthcare in our effort to drive population level reductions in homelessness. And in that partnership, Community Solutions and IHI decided that we needed to get even more closely working together to really figure out what is the role healthcare can play in helping communities not only end homelessness for individuals, but do that across the whole community to see overall reductions in homelessness. And, and especially for people who have chronic health conditions are very vulnerable, both living on the streets and in shelter. Can you tell me a little bit about what the work entailed, who was involved as far as institutions? Yeah, we have been really, really lucky to have the partnership of Kaiser Permanente, Providence, 
Common Spirit, and then in Sacramento specifically to Sutter Health and UC Davis Health have also come to the table. And the commitments they've made have, have really been to partner with the homeless response system in a set of communities. There were five communities in the pilot and test together projects that were connected to a theory of change around the role that health systems can play in ending homelessness. And then not only work locally in those sites, but work collectively with partners across the country who are doing similar work. And looking at measuring together, when we partner together, are we seeing reductions in homelessness? Are we seeing lower healthcare costs? Are we seeing improved population health? So where is the intersection of our aims across these systems? And how can we work on those together and, and measure what kind of change we're seeing across the community? So what kind of things have you learned? I think this was a three-year pilot yes. that you're almost to the end of. Yeah, so the three-year pilot includes at the end of December, but all five sites and the healthcare systems have all um, said they want to continue working together. So while the formal pilot has ended, the work will continue in partnership and in every site we've been working with. And I think we started with the theory of change that there were some key drivers. One was commitment, building together a sustained belief and commitment in ending homelessness across a community together and having a governance system set up where there's shared language, there's shared mechanisms for collaboration and measurement and governance across that work. And that has been really the focus for many of these health systems in the first couple of years of this pilot has been really getting that piece right. Are we building relationships with the homeless response system? Is our commitment showing up not only in just what we're saying, but the kind of capacity investments we're making to have individuals who can integrate the work across systems, the kind of a policy we are advocating for with our public affairs and access to kind of political leadership? Are we leveraging our communications team to really be part of the narrative change that homelessness is a solvable problem and that we are it is a role that healthcare can play as an anchor institution. So that has really been one of the key takeaways is that foundational piece of commitment and governance that starts with relationship building with key stakeholders in the homeless response system. And then from there, there's some really tactical things which are about reducing inflow into the homeless response system. So healthcare system being part of knowing who is at risk of experiencing homelessness in the first place and intervening earlier in their needs so that they don't have to enter the homeless response system. And that's a huge role that we have seen healthcare be able to play a role in housing placements. So how can we increase this people successfully exiting homelessness into housing? And again, that's often about making sure we understand the housing and health needs of an individual and that we're properly matching the housing and services with their needs. So Health systems have played a really incredible role in this pilot in looking at respite care options, looking at shared case conferencing. So we were, we're looking at care coordination together and navigating that person into housing together, investing in housing navigators at the local level. And then lastly, starting to look at different financial mechanisms that can align the resources that the health system have with the local need. And I think that's one of the places we are just at the beginning of that work. I think the last three years have really focused on that commitment, governance, data sharing, starting to move into some of the tactical work around housing placements. But the next horizon for this work is really going deeper into 
How can we better invest in this work together and leverage the broader assets of the healthcare systems? What kind of benefits can a health system see from a partnership like this? Maybe the most important thing is seeing increased health outcomes among the population. We all know, as you mentioned earlier, that research on social determinants of health, you know, housing is a critical component of someone's health and their long-term ability to access healthcare. So that is the place to start, is that if patients, if members of a health system have permanent housing, that right away their health outcomes are going to increase. The health system ensuring that everyone who's known to that health system has access to permanent housing will go a long way in that person's access to good health outcomes over the course of their life. So that's the number one reason to be involved. The second is really bringing the right capabilities and capacities into the four walls of the hospital to work with this population and partner with others who can help support this population. Often the staff within hospitals are pulled in a million different directions with a million different priorities and may or may not have the expertise to know what is the next thing I need to do to support this person that I now understand is experiencing homelessness. And partnering with subject matter experts in the homeless response system can ensure staff within hospitals have access to the right support that they need and aren't feeling demoralized by seeing patients that they just can't help because they don't know what the resources are specific to housing. So not putting everything on the staff in in the hospital to really working to identify what capacity do we need to invest in. And I think that has probably been one of the most exciting outcomes has been hospitals investing in housing navigators and integrators that are helping to bridge between these systems. I think we're just seeing incredibly big dividends in the outcomes, both for hospitals and people not coming back to the emergency departments, but also in people's ability to have a better experience of care and build trust with the health systems that they're going to help them access the kind of care that they need. This is really exciting work. I look forward to hearing what you learn as you continue and expand and extend. So Beth Sandor, thank you so much. Please have us back. We'd love to keep the conversation going. Absolutely. Yeah. Keep me posted. Um, Thank you so much for joining me today. Of course. Thank you. Voices in Healthcare Finance is a production of the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Additional reporting is by Nick Hutt, Sean Stack, and the HFMA editorial team. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is the director of content. Our president and CEO is Ann Jordan. You were telling me how great I was.